Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. What do you want? We get asked a question like that often when you order at a restaurant or when generating a Christmas list or even when at a crossroads in a dating relationship. But of course, there are differing levels of seriousness to that question. Sometimes it is, what do you prefer? Or what strikes your fancy? But sometimes it is, what do you really want? In other words, what do you desire? It's hard to think of a more piercing or demanding question than that. What do you desire? What do you really want? But then again, there is another question that goes right along with that one that most of us do not confront even if we do take seriously the question of what we want. That other question is the question of how do we want? How do we desire? And it is precisely that hidden question of how do you desire, right alongside the slightly more evident question of what do you want, that my guest on today's show takes utterly seriously. And he helps us to take it seriously, too. Luke Burgess teaches business at the Catholic University of America, where he is also entrepreneur-in-residence. An entrepreneur himself, he has co-created and founded four companies in wellness, consumer products, and technology. Now he is managing partner of Fourth Wall Ventures, an incubator that he started to build, train, and invest in people and companies that contribute to a healthy human ecology. On the basis of his extensive experience, along with his equally extensive classical training, his research, and his spiritual formation, Luke has authored a book filled with stories of woe and transformation, analysis of the mysterious workings of desire, and proposals for beginning to lead a healthier, more creative, truly human life. His book is Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. You can find an excerpt of the book in the Church Life Journal in an article titled, The Joy of Hate-Watching. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Let's get to it. Luke, welcome to the show. Hey, Lenny, thanks for having me on. Luke, in your book, Wanting, you set out to show how desire works for us human creatures, right? But part of that work includes revealing our misconceptions about how desire works. I found that time and again in your book, you name the romantic lie. And I was wondering if you could start us off by just kind of telling us about the romantic lie about desire. What is this? How does it work? The romantic lie is a phrase coined by the French Catholic thinker, René Girard. And he used it to refer to the common understanding that we have about desire, which is that we generate our desires as humans ex nihilo, like we're the creators of our own desires. And they just spontaneously arise within us from one day to the next. And that we want things based solely on our independent evaluation around the objective qualities of the thing itself. And he says, that's the lie that we tell ourselves to deny our social nature as human persons. And Girard said, the romantic lie contradicts the real mechanism of desire and the way that desire works in in a human, 
in that we always look to others to help us evaluate what is desirable. Other people, other things, real or fictional, are always coloring our perceptions of the value of objects in the world. So the romantic lie is this kind of idea that we're completely independent. really like that phrase you, you use there, picking up from Girard, that we deny, we have a sort of habit of denying our social nature, sort of this myth of our own sort of self-generated autonomy or individuality, which filters right into how we think about our desires. And so as we shift, as you, you bring us to do in, in your book, again, following Girard, towards the theory and really the, the recognition of mimetic desire, it might be a, a sort of brutal introduction into the social dimensions of what it means to be human, that our desires are actually in many ways socially shaped and constructed. Could you give us, especially for those who aren't terribly familiar with how mimetic desire works, give us a, a bit of an introduction into this shifted way of understanding desire? Yeah, Girard initially called mimetic desire triangular desire in mm. his very first book. And it eventually evolved where he called it mimetic. The image of a triangle is, I think, helpful in understanding it. So we imagine there's a straight line between us and the object of our desires, which is the romantic lie, by the way. Right. The mimetic structure of desire, in Girard's view, means that that straight line is not actually a straight line. In fact, there is a third person or group or something somewhere around us and the object that is affecting our desire for the object. So you could draw, if you imagine that, that third thing somewhere off to the side, you, you draw a line to that thing and then to the object. So in other words, it kind of bends or, or distorts the desire that we have for that object. So mimetic desire is really a fancy way of saying that desire is imitative, that mm. we're always imitating what Gerard calls a model of desire. And one way to think about mimetic desire would be I mean, in the context of theology, uh, you mm -hmm. could think of it almost as deviated desire. Think about, you know, the book of Genesis. You have Adam and Eve in, in the garden, and there was no desire for the forbidden fruit until that desire was suggested to Eve by the serpent. So the serpent acted as a model of desire. And very suddenly in that story, there's a desire for this thing, which had not even come into play before there was a model for it. So, you know, Gerard mm. associates this even with the sort of satanic elements of the reason why there's so much conflict in human nature is that Satan sort of models the kinds of desire that lead to conflict and to rivalry. Mm. So to put a sort of brief comment on this in terms of the distinction between the romantic lie and Gerard's understanding of mimetic desire. The romantic lie is we just sort of generate this desire for an object and it's come out of me. But what you're saying here is that we desire actually what other people desire. And that has to do very much with our desire of any object or goal. It's imitative of someone else's desire, right? Exactly. Yep. I mean, to, to greater or less degrees. Yeah. But recognizing our social nature is really the, the, the key to understanding that our desire also is social and in many cases derivative mm. of, you know, it could be the family system that we're in. It could be, you know, the, the, the church mediates desires to us in various ways. It's yes, it's recognizing that desire is generated and shaped through a social process. How important do you think it is that people be able to see this. So what I mean is that it's one thing to 
sort of be told the way that desire works, but it seems something else entirely when our own eyes are able to detect these sort of systems of desire or these dynamics of desire. And I, and I bring that up because as you were even explaining mimetic desire, you brought us back to triangular desire, and we have to sort of picture in our mind the way it works. And all throughout your book, Wanting, there's these wonderful sketches and little maps or not quite charts, but kind of scenarios that are presented to us throughout the book to help us to see what it is you're showing us. And then, of course, you're telling story after story, I think, to help us as readers to really picture and embed ourselves in these situations where we can see desire working. So to bring it back to that question I started here with, how important do you think it is to see desire at work? I think it's absolutely critical to have an awareness of this. So I had no kind of awareness of this part of myself I very much lived by the romantic lie up until my mid-20s. And it really kind of took me in, in a lot of different directions, uh, gave me you know, some existential and career whiplash. I didn't really understand what was going on. The danger is even after having read Gerard and seen some of the mimetic mechanisms playing out in the world and herd mentality and people doing things or thinking or saying things because other people think them, which is part of what mimetic desire explains. I saw it everywhere out there, except in myself. Hmm. So, you know, you're looking at an intellectual level, you look at triangular desire and you read it on the page and you see it and you start making these connections. It took me a while. It took me years, frankly, to really come to grips with the way that it was operative in my own life, something that's inside of me, internal to me, internal to my relationships in my life. And that's the really hard part. And you know, as you said, I, I tell the stories in the book not to talk about myself. The hope is that the reader can begin to make some connections to their own life because that's where this all comes together. What kind of difference did that make for you once you were able to see this in yourself? It allowed me to have more intentionality and develop skills of discernment, hmm. real skills of discernment. And I've been very fortunate to have spent a few years in seminary and uh, where I was able to develop some of that. And fortunately, discernment is not a skill that many children are taught hmm. or like learn to develop. But the only way that desires can be understood, the only way to understand whether a desire leads to fulfillment or to rivalry or misery is through careful discernment. I think, you know, the Ignatian exercises have a lot to say about this. Desires are not something that we can put in an algorithm and, and have it tell us what to do, you know, when it comes to vocation decisions, marriage, career. Uh, these are questions of discernment. So it made me understand the importance of being able to discern desires. I began to distance myself from all of the mimetic forces in the world on social media and everywhere else on the news, everywhere else you turn. Started taking, uh, you know, good five-day silent retreat every year. That was 10 years ago. I've been doing it almost every year since. And just developing some, some awareness and actually some patience, right? Like before I just go down a road passionately <laughs> pursuing a desire, <laughs> yeah. um, which I'm inclined to do right. Right? as a, you know, ambitious entrepreneurial minded guy. Uh, and I still very much am. I just kind of have a, a way now to just put a check on things and put the brakes on, have a little bit more patience, you know, sit with it, you know, in prayer before I, I go all in on these things. Because we tend to take our desires for granted without actually sinking down mm -hmm. into them and understanding where they're coming from. Is this, is this from God? Is this from the culture? Is it worldly? Is it, I mean, so th that process is, is really key 
to being able to move beyond being a total kind of instrument of mimetic forces, if you will. Yeah. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. I am talking with Luke Burgess, entrepreneur in residence at the Catholic University of America, managing partner of Fourth Wall Ventures, and author of Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. Very briefly, you touched on sort of social media, the news as places where mimetic desire tends to circulate, you're formed, your desires tend to be formed there. In this article that you published recently in our Church Life Journal, which came under the title The Joy of Hate Watching, one of the things that caught my eye is that you named our devices, these devices we carry around in our pockets, as mimetic machines. So I take it that they lead us to these spaces where we end up being uh, sort of immersed in seas of mimetic desire and ways of being shaped there. How do our smartphones, other devices function to immerse us in these mimetic cycles? Yeah, the these devices are really portals almost existential portals into these universes of mimetic desire mm. that I'm not sure we, we really understand. Oftentimes, the problem, this, and I put that in quotes, the problem with social media is analyzed in very materialistic terms. There are people doing good work looking at the ways in which there are some neurologically addictive aspects to social media. Like we have this Pavlovian response. You know, we get the dopamine hit when we see the notifications on our phones. And it's true, but it, it doesn't really explain the, the real nature and depth of the problem, in my view. And that is, if we understand the way that mimetic desire works, that human beings have this like innate need to look for models of desire. We desperately, we seek models of desire. You begin to understand that this device that we have in our pocket is a portal into a world of more mimetic desire than, than we've a human being has ever had access to in their pockets. Mm -hmm. And mimetic desire is fundamentally, I situate it not on a biological level. There, there are some people are looking at mere neurons and trying to understand why human beings are so imitative, but I situate it at, at the spiritual level. And I think we have to understand spiritually what's going on with social media. One of the things is that we open up our device, especially children, 13, 14, 15 years old, now look at their phones and see millions, even billions of other people their age wanting various things. And existentially speaking, it's almost like we've taken all of the desires in, in, in the world and fitted them all in the head of a pin. Hmm. And that pin just happens to look like a smartphone. In the book, I tried to provide a Girardian perspective on social media to see a different side of the problem. And I call them mimetic machines because I think they're fueling mimetic desire and by extension, rivalry and insecurity and status anxiety, unlike anything we've ever seen. If this is one of the places, maybe one of the primary places, as you're mentioning, especially for young people, but not only where desires are being shaped, we don't even recognize this. What is a kind of antidote to that? And I'm, I'm wondering, especially here, you know, pulling from your book about the, the place of fulfillment stories, which you put towards the forefront of kind of the, the cure for this sort of trap of mimetic desire. Is this one of the antidotes to something like social media, to the ways in which our desires are shaped for us in an unhealthy way, the importance of fulfillment stories. Yeah, fulfillment stories is, a, is an exercise I was introduced to about a decade ago by my good friend, Dr. Joshua Miller. And this has to do with cutting through the 
purely or largely just mimetic forces. And, and I call those thin desires mm-hmm. in the book, just to give them a, a simple sort of name. Like what we're talking about with thin desires are just highly, highly mimetic things, the things that are here today, we're inflamed, gone tomorrow. And to try to take hold of some thicker desires, and thick desires can be good or bad, by the way. You can develop thick desires for, you know, that can be vices. But more often than not, when you ask people to tell you a story about a time in their life when they engaged in some action that where they had agency and they found some deep meaning and sense of joy or fulfillment in some small achievement, just something that's important to them, you tend to find, first of all, that, and I've been doing this for 10 years now, I take all of my students through this exercise, 99.999% of the time, they're telling some story of making a self-gift and serving other people. It's amazing Mm. because these are fulfillment stories. And two, I believe kind of, you know, very much in the style of Augustine and the confessions that this is a bit like an exercise of looking back at your life and seeing those, those moments of the Holy Spirit operative where, you know, one of the fruits of the spirit is joy. And that's why the fulfillment stories are so important and asking them mining my life and my colleagues' lives and my children's lives for, for these kinds of stories is critical because it's helping cut through the mimetic forces that are rampant on social media and identifying something more core to the essence of that person, who that person may be at their core, not just where they're from and what football team they like and what food they like, but something internal to them, something that is meaningful to them. That's how we really get to know people. So if you ever want a way to get to know somebody at their core very quickly, uh, this you know, asking them to tell you a few fulfillment stories is a great way to do it. I imagine our listeners are already getting a sense of the sort of spiritual significance that comes from what you're doing here in your book. It's not that all throughout you're talking about, and this has to do with religion, and this has to do with the religion. You're actually giving us a way of seeing the sort of cultures that we abide in and the ways, as you've already mentioned, that we do desire and that we could desire. So it has to do with who we are and who we could become. Nevertheless, there are certain explicit moments where you do talk on religion and spiritual matters more clearly. And one of those times is when you speak about the spiritual stagnation in our modern world, which is coupled with the broad exodus that we see from organized religion. And one of the things you want to argue there is that there has been, and I'm quoting you here, a wholesale liquidation of deep desire and that Continuing on a couple lines later, thin desires drove out the thick ones, especially in organized religion. Help us understand what you are saying here. It's a, it's a different take on what many of us normally hear about the reasons for the exodus from organized religion. Yeah, that kind of comes from something in finance called Gresham's Law. It's that you know, bad money drives out the good. Mm. I mean, desire is the fountain foundation of the spiritual life. You know, prayer it, you know, is about desire, for instance. You, you go into prayer with a desire, you know, to listen and to love God. You know, it's the desire has so many implications for the spiritual life. And I think that as we lose sight of that and focus on, you know, petty rivalries like intra church stuff, we lose sight of feeding and nourishing the desires of, of people. And quite frankly, I think that some for-profit companies out there are paying very close attention to the deepest desires of people's hearts, companies like Google and Apple and Facebook. And although they don't have the answers that you know the church has or the religious leaders have, 
they're still focusing on them probably more than we are. So in a sense, you know, what I'm arguing there is that we've sort of taken our, our eye off of the ball because we're not thinking about the right things. And I think Gerard has a lot to tell us about this from the lens of mimetic desire. He's saying that we can easily get caught in mimetic rivalries. Um, that means that we, we sort of, you know, as we're imitating another person or group or thing or the secular culture or whatever it is, we can, we can begin to become more focused on that obsessively focused with that rather than kind of the the root desires, the real things that are underneath all of all of this under the surface. And so what I'm trying to argue in the book there is that these first principles of desire are what we kind of need to get back to. That sounds to me, I mean, for, as somebody who sort of works a little bit professionally in these church matters, like a pastoral recalibration, like as you said, uh, many for-profit companies are paying very close attention to the deepest desires of people's hearts. They can't satisfy them, but they present ways of those desires potentially being satisfied or at least inciting them. And so it sounds to me like you're saying, you know, following Gerard, the, the key here is to actually focus back on what are the deep desires and listen to people's hearts and actually respond to those or show the way of responding to those. And I'm reminded, and I'd love to hear what you think about this, I'm reminded of the very first words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John. It's actually a question to these two disciples of John the Baptist that are following him. He whips around and says, what are you looking for? Right? So this question of, it sounds like a question of desire. What are you looking for? What do you hear in a question like that from Jesus? I think it's a question of desire. <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen The Chosen. Yeah. Well, I've seen a little bit. Yeah. 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 So I, I've been watching it. I went into it, frankly, kind of skeptical. But right. One of the things that I love about it, I, I do think it's well done. And I think that it depicts the transformation of desire beautifully. You see the disciples taking only worldly models as their models of desire. Peter's worried about taxes and, and every all of the, the, I love it, you know, because it focuses on Jesus through the perspective of the disciples. And I think that the show is really depicting the transformation of desire if I had to sum it up. And I think it does it beautifully. And you see that there's this process of conversion. It's a continual process mm -hmm. of conversion, a reordering of desires, because Christ is the only model of desire that's totally transcendent to the world that can ever sort of pull, the, reorient them and, and pull them out of, of the predicament that they were in, right? To get them focused on, on transcendent desires and following him. So I think that that question and, and questions throughout the gospel, right, right through to the end, yeah. are all related to that question of what is it that you want? Hmm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm talking with Luke Burgess, entrepreneur in residence at the Catholic University of America, managing partner of Fourth Wall Ventures, and author of Wanting, the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. Luke, that brings me then to one of the questions that runs all throughout the book that I don't know, really challenged me, and I found it to be incredibly stimulating. It's the question posed variously as, what have you helped other people to want? What have you helped other people to want? Man, that to me is an indicting question. It means that, or at least it sounds like, we are responsible to each other for how we form desires. Tell us about how you understand that responsibility and how we can start to better reckon with it. You know, I think that's a responsibility that every parent 
understands, you know, that they're models of desire for their children and that the things that they want from the superficial, right. Being, you know, fans of a certain team or something like that, uh, you know, to, to the more important ones, really, they're always looking. And I think we forget that that still happens as adults. And frankly, what inspired that tactic, which comes near the end of the book, but as you pointed out, it's the question running through the whole book was C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. Mm. And he has a passage near the end of his sermon called The Weight of Glory, which is one of my favorites. He's talking about heaven and, and our responsibility to serve our neighbor. And he says, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It's in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. You know, there are no ordinary people. So he's talking about, you know, the, the weight of glory is kind of the weight of our, of our neighbor's glory, right, on us. And every interaction that we have with them helps them get, you know, one step closer, one step further away to that fullness of relationship. And frankly, I was taking that. I, I was um, I was riffing off that a bit, and I, I spent a couple of years haunted by that. And then I started thinking about that and reframing it in the context of desire, and thinking, man, like every everybody that comes into contact with me is probably going to leave that interaction wanting to love a little bit more or, or less or, or or differently, because we are models of desire to each other, and somebody's looking to me. Um, maybe some of my students, they're probably people I don't even know look to me as a model of desire. And I felt this enormous responsibility to go through my life realizing that as I'm affected by what other people want, one, I have a great responsibility to choose my friends and the people I surround myself with very wisely, but also that I'm I'm also a model of desire and that I, in some sense, bear a weight and responsibility for what those around me want. You know, I can cause scandal or I can edify. So it's just kind of a something that I, I try to keep constantly on my mind. And I think we'd, we'd all do well to just think more seriously about that responsibility. If in fact desire is mimetic, then this is part of the weight that we have as Christians. That brings me to, to something that I don't know if you mentioned it in the book, but you certainly mentioned it on your website, which is that your favorite virtue is hope. And you definitely, towards the end of the book, are bringing forward the importance, the priority of hope. And it, it seems to me that one of the things you're pointing out is that we just have this incredible crisis of a lack of hope in the world these days, that it's there sort of culturally, but it's also there in each one of us. Perhaps we haven't been free to hope boldly enough to hope in a way that would not just stretch us, but would also be productive and generative of new life. How do you think about the importance of hope in terms of the transformation of desire? You know, without hope, you know, there's really no desire. I mean, if there's no hope for fulfillment, then desire kind of dies you know, on the operating table. I mean, there's there's no path forward. I mean, hope is absolutely essential to human life. I think I thought about this more during the pandemic than ever. You know, hope seemed to be the most important thing that we could cultivate as a culture. And I come from the tech startup world and I read all kinds of things and solutions and, you know, it's time to build, you know, we've just got to build more things. And it just dawned on me and I finished the book during during the pandemic. I mean, when it was at its worst, so, you know, that's why the, the book is dedicated to my wife and to hope, because at the end of the day, hope is where these great desires are kindled and, and are able to breathe. And we, we need hope more than ever before. 
And I feel like in the culture, there has been this sense of stagnation, especially spiritual stagnation. And I think we need to look to the, you know, the communion of saints, look to Christ. Somehow we need a, a rekindling of the virtue of hope. And it is a virtue, by the way, which means that we can, we can do things, right, to cultivate it, or we can do, it's like faith, yeah. or we can do things to lose it. And I think that, you know, it's something that I'm certainly striving to, to put at the, the forefront of my life is to be a more hopeful person. There's a lot of doomsayers out there. Yeah, indeed. And I, I suppose a lot of that doomsaying is about other people, right? To to split us up into to camps, to want to cancel each other, to be right so that the other person is wrong or so they are wrong in order that we might be right. So maybe tying this together with what you were just mentioning from C.S. Lewis and the weight of glory, the weight of your neighbor's glory and your emphasis on the virtue of hope – how about hoping for your neighbor? Is that a way out of this mimetic cycle to actually hope thickly for their good, for their glory? I think so. And, you know, one of the beautiful things about that, it's kind of like empathy. So Gerard pointed out that mimetic desire is it's just is, it is. It's not positive. It's not negative. It often leads to negative, destructive consequences when we don't, because it leads us into rivalry and competition mm-hmm. with other people. But it's a tremendously positive thing too. So if we hope for another person who perhaps does not have any hope themselves, then that hope itself is mimetic. So that is a way to help cultivate hope in another, is to hope for them and to communicate that to to them in some way. You know, there's nothing more powerful for a young person, for example, to have somebody believe in them and, and hope in them and see their potential. And that is, I think, absolutely one way out is to to have hope for others and to concretize it, not hope in an abstract sense, but find somebody in your life today that you want to generate and, and hope for, and then find some way to make that real. This just brought something into focus for me, Luke, here at the end, which at the very end of your book, at the end of the acknowledgments, you quote Dante, uh, the very last line of the Divine Comedy But by now my desire and will were turned like a balanced wheel rotated evenly by the love that moves the sun and the other stars, the famous closing of the poem. And what you were just saying about hoping for the person who has no hope for themselves, that was Dante at the beginning of the comedy. And it was the Blessed Mother's hope for him. And it was Beatrice's hope for him that led him to this end. So you've ended this book by quoting Dante, it seems, by giving us this horizon, this image of what the fulfillment of hope might be. And by showing us what that might be in the end, maybe it has instigated it in us a little bit more courage and boldness to hope now. That's what I see here at the end. I don't know. Well, how I, that... well that, that's um, a beautiful thing for an author to hear somebody that's that's read the closing quote to the book. Um, <laughs> you got, the, got through the whole thing. Thank you. Well, it, it's it, I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you, you you noticed that. I mean that that was a wink and a nod. Um, I wrote the book for a general audience. Yeah. You know, I wanted this to be palpable for everybody. I wanted it. I wanted them to be receptive to it. But it, you know, it's pretty clear where where I think our hope lies. Mm. And, and, you know, I think that Dante's journey is, was really a journey of desire. You know, when he encounters the creatures that are kind of blocking the path uh, in the very beginning, they, they represent disordered desires. And that entire journey 
is a journey of a transformation and a reordering of desires ordered towards, you know, the, the highest, the, the true, the good, and the beautiful. So I couldn't think of a better way to close the book. That's what it's all about. Beautifully done. The book is Wanting the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. It is out now from St. Martin's Press. The author is my guest, Luke Burgess. Luke, thank you so much for spending this time here. Thanks so much for having me on. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to Redeemer Radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU.